Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm Chesney. And today we have episode 34, The Rose Crest. And after last episode, I would have been expecting, had I not like known the show, but like I would have expected a bit more fallout from last episode. Instead, we just move right along <laughs> into like the next arc of the show, which is the end of the world arc. This one ends up telling the story of Anthe and the prince two different ways. First, we get the shadow play, and then we get an actual flashback to the moment where Utina actually met the prince. Like, not just the fairy tale opening, but the whole story there. Like, we see the whole thing play out. It was like a double shot of backstory here. <laughs> yeah, some would even argue a triple shot. <laughs> I was not expecting this at all. I didn't think that we would get this reveal right after last episode. I thought we were going to dilly-dally a little bit. Nope. We are just full balls to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I think if this show was made today, we would have an episode about the fallout from last episode. Just because I think that like the sensibility going into it from a production team would have recognized that there needs to be a little emotional breathing room after what we just saw. Yeah. Partly because... If it was made today, there would be, I think, greater attention paid to it not being okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this episode just blew me away. I, <laughs> I'm at a loss. And the fact that we had, like, kind of two more, like, semi-reveals at the end, the very, very end of the episode... um. We're just wild. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dig into like the full breakdown, what do you think of this sudden reveal? Like, what does it make you think now that you know the backstory on these two? I have more questions about Akio that I did not think that I would have. Like what? Because so if... Anthe sacrificing herself sealed the prince away. Who the fuck is Akio? Like, it is him, right? But if the prince that we saw talk to Utena in the flashback is the prince that she knew and the brother that she knew back then, that bit just got stripped away and sealed away from Akio, and this is what's left? Yeah, so we kind of got a tease of this in episode 13, when Akio went up to the castle to talk to Dios. Yeah. That, like, you can see it from, like, their costumes, their hair, all of it, that you kind of have, like, a younger and older version of the same person here. Yeah. Or that, like, one of them is just frozen in time. Like, a part of him is frozen in time. Yeah. From a fever? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> Brother, you've got the scarlet fever. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to take a rest. <sighs> it's the consumption, Ma. 
But um, yeah, so like we get these two different versions of that story, right? Like we get the version where Anthe is the villain who is the witch who trapped him in the castle, which is the perspective of the shadow girls who in their worldview, like in the worldview of the play that they are presenting, any girl who can't be a princess is doomed to become a witch. And since this girl has sealed the prince away, well, all the rest of us are now fucked because none of us can become princesses anymore. So Anthony's clearly the villain. And we'll get into like the metaphors of all of this in a bit. But like Anthony's clearly the villain of that plot line. Yeah. But then we see the flashback and it's a lot murkier. Like it's hard to say she's a villain there. Like she's protecting him the only way she knows how. Like the right. world is exploiting him. The world is exploiting his kindness. And he is going to end up killing himself helping people right and so like the only way to protect him is to stop him from doing that but at the same time that means stopping him from fulfilling what he is like he can't fulfill his role even if eventually it would lead to his death he is now trapped eternally the same way she is it's a lot to take in (laughs) 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 but yes it's it's kind of wild how this show's biggest lesson apparently is uh don't overwork yourself. <laughs> make make sure to take care of you. <laughs> Otherwise well, you'll be like cursed forever. So Yeah. Don't don't overwork yourself. Otherwise a woman will sacrifice herself to keep you alive. <laughs> yeah. And seal you away forever. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, God, there's just so much to dig into with, like, the complicated nature of this metaphor, right? Like, yeah, this isn't a clean depiction of, like, patriarchy bad because man (laughs) is dominant, you know? Like, it's not that. It's like, no these rules trap both people in ways that like they themselves uphold, even though it hurts them. So the other piece of it that's interesting to me is again, the time aspect of it, because from the Anthe flashback, it looks as if at first that it's taking place in a sort of like medieval time or something. They're in a cabin. Yeah. They're in a cabin. There's like people surrounding them with swords or surrounding the cabin with swords and like asking to save their daughter and blah, blah, blah. The way that you would ask a medieval type prince. But at the same time, a little bit further in the flashback, when Anthe goes to confront them, they're wearing modern clothes. They're wearing suits. There's also a fax machine going off in the background when <laughs> Anthe's tending to um, when Anthe's tending to the prince. Yeah. Oh yeah. The chronology of this is all kinds of mixed up. And also, I think it's noteworthy that when we see this flashback, it matches the rest of the the visual theme of the show, which is very much a European fairy tale. And a yeah. European 
uh, like medieval period being depicted because we're not seeing medieval Japan. Like they're not carrying tools that were in use in 1500s in Japan. We're not seeing, um, you know, we're not seeing the, the prince doesn't wear a kimono, you know, like this isn't like, he's not depicted as a samurai, like nothing like that. We see very clearly like a French or Spanish prince. Mm -hmm. Or even Eastern European, but yeah, definitely European. So the first scene of this episode is um, entirely like letterboxed both vertically and horizontally at different scenes. We only see a fragment of each shot. It was just a really interesting way of doing this scene. And there's always like some motion through the frame. Predominantly, we are seeing Akio and Anthe putting their clothes back on. Uh, we see some drinks on the table. Uh, we see the planetarium projector. Clearly, this is like post-sex. Yeah. And he is talking to her about having just discovered a new comet. And he says he's not even going to name it. Discovering it gives you the sense that it's your property, but it isn't. The stars belong to everyone. This metaphor cannot be more obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he has talked before about the idea that the young girls at the school are stars. We've heard him talk before about how stars fade from the moment they're born. Um, And so he says he's discovered a new one and it's an illusion that it's his property, but it feels like it's his, but he's not going to name it. Clearly he is talking about having sex with Utena. Yeah. Like that's the metaphor here. Yeah. God, the line in particular, the feeling of discovering a new star is amazing. Ick. Disgusting. Yep. Ew. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) And the song that's playing this entire time is Belladonna's Poison, which, absent the scene, I love that song. But, like, it's a powerful note to open an episode on. Yeah. Also, Anthe leaving and saying goodbye, and him responding with, must you still torture me? Yeah. She, she just let, like, she just left, dude. What? It- <laughs> well, Anthe does anything. Must you still torture me? Bruh. <laughs> You're the one with the problem. <laughs> but we see, <laughs> yeah, there is that. But also we see in this episode that that relationship of harm isn't one-sided. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, we've talked about it before that there have been hints that Anthe has more control over this situation than she lets on. Yeah, and um, she kind of smiles in response to him, too. So it is acknowledging that she, it's like a game, a weird game that they play after thousands of years with each other. <laughs> like, here's the other thing. If you, <laughs> if you think about it, of like, of it being a relationship over the course of hundreds Gross, of years. But go on. Let's just <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just over the course of hundreds of years. Um <laughs> at minimum. At 
what point did Akio minus the prince go, or the princely side of him, go, yeah, we should just have sex now. Like, and like at what point in there, and I don't really want to know, but it's like at some point they went from siblings to, yeah, we crossed the line to, yeah, we've just been together so long that we do this and we don't always do it because we like or love each other. We just want to hurt each other. Like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I get it. It's been hundreds of years, but at the same time, I don't. I will never understand crossing that line. <laughs> <laughs> but to them, it is like we've been together for so long uh, that all we know how to do is like hurt each other, kind of. Um, it's just it's gone on for too long. And it's so fucked up now that it's past the point of return. Yeah, like, this is clearly a scenario where both of them have hurt each other. And we kind of see the genesis of it in, like, trapping him. Yeah. And it muddies the waters a little bit there of, like, which one is the villain, which one is, like, quote-unquote, the abuser. Mm -hmm. and. Just like with a real abusive relationship, when you break it down to like the acts being committed, it can be easy to lose focus on like who's the abuser, who's the victim, like who's fighting, who's fighting back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then we ha- have to zoom out and look at like the power dynamic at play. And it may be true that the initial thing that started all of this was Anthe kidnapping him so supposedly for his own good. You know, a, a well-intentioned but harmful act. At the time that the show is taking place, Akio clearly has more power than her. Right. And also blames her for his own exercise of his power, which is like a classic abuser tactic. Mm-hmm. Like the, 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 why did you make me do this? Right. Exactly. Like line of thinking. Um, and so I think the unanswered and maybe unanswerable question is how free is he to leave versus how free is she to leave? Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know if we have a satisfactory answer to that. Um, Because ironically, if she's more free to leave than he is, then that actually supports the idea that she's in control of his like so-called imprisonment. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if he is also free to leave. Like, I wonder if, um, if he chose to do so, could he just leave the school forever and leave it all behind? Like, assuming that the stories themselves in the past are somehow metaphors and that all that exists is actually the present where we have two siblings and one of them is the vice chairman of the school and and so forth. Um, yes, clearly he is able to like get in his car and leave and never come back. <laughs> yeah. He could break things off with Kanae tomorrow, and then that's it. Right. Um, but we also have this, like, magical realism layer to the show. Where right. 
he also has this prince side of him that he wants back. <laughs> and it's undeniable that there's a fucking castle in the forest and like in the back of the school. <laughs> Just an upside so, down <laughs> castle back there. <laughs> so I think it's easy to get like lost in the weeds on like some of the, the like the metaphysics of all of this. Yeah. I think what's more important is to remember that at the end of the day, this is in a sense, a morality play about gender roles and gender norms and gender expectations. And so like there is a melodrama here being played out about this idea that you're either a princess or a witch. Right. Like, that That is clearly not how it goes in real life. <laughs> Uh, and and like that is entirely the perspective like the idealized perspective of a teenager looking up at adulthood through the lens of stories that they've been told exactly as a child yeah yeah through the lens of children's storytelling um something else that i want to point out that is true in both tellings of the story is that the prince either can't or won't save his sister, his little sister. So they mention it in the play, in the tale of the rose. And then we see through the flashback that he does not save her from being pierced by God knows how many swords. He was on the other side of that room or on the other side of that door. Excuse me. Like, sure, he was, like, low on energy or whatever, but, like, he was there, and he couldn't save her for whatever reason, whether he is restricted by something or wouldn't. Yeah, and also, like, you have this entire show up until this point with Utena fighting to become a prince. And the gender questions inherent in that. This is not the first episode where it is pointed out to her that she's a girl. And that maybe this isn't the right call. You know, and like, that is a reification of the the message of the patriarchy to girls that, no, there's a role for you. And it is not this role. Mm -hmm. And then we have Akio, who is like... As Akio, he is the, um, in a sense, the the pinnacle of toxic masculinity. Everything is about him. Everything is about satisfying his desires. Anything he does is uh, self-justifying. And naturally, because of that, the prince, which is, in a sense... I don't want to say not the toxic version of masculinity because like it still kind of is mm -hmm. like, there are two halves of the same coin, but it's like the self-sacrificing part is inaccessible to him. He can't be Anthe's prince anymore because he has given in to the selfish pursuit of power. But at the same time, even if he was the prince, he'd still be upholding masculinity versus femininity. Yeah. If you think we're not going to be coming back to that theme for the last five episodes of the show, 
you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. We have built to the point that this show is trying to make, and it is going to be playing out for the rest of the show. <laughs> now, I just want you to take a moment and imagine everything we just saw is the necessary background for the climax. This isn't even the climax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> This reveal isn't the climax. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> There's one more thing that I want to point out and or just mention here. And that is this episode really shows how Nanami is Anthe's foil. How so? Well, I feel like when, you know, during the flashback, it showed a younger version of Anthe. And she reminded me so much of Nanami and her dedication to her brother. Like what she did there, I feel like is something that Nanami would have done for Toga. Like stop pushing yourself. I'm going to protect you from these people. Um, and I'm going to protect you from yourself. In a sense, she does that when she takes over the role of student council president. Yeah. However, I think with the Nanami moment, we see something that we don't get to see here, but is still, I think, present, which is that Nanami did that for her own benefit. Yeah. And I think on some level, so did Anthe. Mm. It's not shown that way. It's not given to us in, from that perspective. I mean, it makes sense, though, because she would have more time with her brother. Like, that was Anthe's, at, at minimum, that was Anthe's reward for doing that, so to speak. Yeah, and we'll get to it in a, when we get to that scene, but there's a moment where it is pointed out that because she's his sister, Anthe is the one girl that he cannot make into a princess. Yeah. And so, like, there is some jealousy there in that storytelling which also mirrors Nanami and Toga. Yep. But the again, the point where they split is the line that they will cross or the relationship, maybe the relationship that they want with the other person because Nanami does not see Toga that way, does not want that kind of a relationship with him. When he was like, I guess, testing her, so kind of, so to speak. Um, she rejected him and was, like, kind of horrified. <laughs> <laughs> She's, it speaks to, like, her being younger and, like, she's just not ready for that. Like, she's not ready for that in general with anyone. Um, but I also, I don't know. I think that's just kind of deviation in character there. But who knows? Maybe if Toga and Nanami were trapped together for hundreds of years, <laughs> maybe we would get the same outcome here. I don't know. But I just wanted to point out like how well done that foil is to where when oh, I yeah. was watching this episode, I was like, holy shit, that is so well done. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, like it brings up the questions of, what does that mean about Utena if Nanami's story also reflects Utena's story? And like, 
what does it mean for Utena to be a part of this dynamic all of a sudden? So then we get to see the shadow girls for the first time, not yes. as shadows. And I immediately knew it was them. <laughs> yeah. They have the same hair that is seen in silhouette, but now we get to actually see the shadow girls as actual girls. Um, we only see them from behind. <laughs> right. We don't get a face reveal on them, but they're asking Utena to join the drama club because they have a play coming up after school. Uh, they, they are known as the Kashira players and they will be presenting the tale of the rose. And then Wakaba shows up and is, I, I'm guessing looking for like yearbook or keepsake photos, um, like trying to figure out like which are the best ones. And Utina remarks that there's none of Anthe. Yeah. I mean, before we got the flashback, like if this had been again, an episode with like, more filler or like dissecting what happened in the last episode. This would have been the point where I would have made the joke of like, Oh yeah, well it's because Anthe's hundreds of years old, but now it's not a joke anymore. (laughs) 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 See, this goes back to my contention that this is actually a show about vampires. (laughs) And that the reason Anthe is not captured on film is because she's a vampire. I mean, we have we we have no proof that that's not what's happening. So that's not red wine in Akio's cup all the time. That's blood. <laughs> I'm so glad we got a tinfoil hat conspiracy <laughs> from you this episode. <laughs> so I, I mean, I've explained this on the show before. Like this goes all the way back to my introduction to Utana, which was from an AMV that someone had done that really made it look like the show was about vampires. Oh yeah. They leaned, they leaned really heavily on that cup and the coffins and the swords and the roses and like putting those images together. You get some Anne Rice shit. (laughs) Like that's some interview with the vampire bullshit right there, which I love. I am here for it. I want the version of this show that is about vampires. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Yeah. I just like that. My tinfoil hat conspiracy is aliens and yours is vampires. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of pictures though, uh, we cut to Utana having wrangled Akio and Anthe in order to get a picture of the two of them together. And so Utena and Anthe are posing for a photo that Akio is taking. And then he sets the timer and jumps in the picture with them. And uh, Choo Choo blocks the frame. Like he's looking over, he's sitting on the camera and looking over it. And this is our one time we see Choo Choo this episode. Um, And he is uh, blocking the the camera and Anthe's like, Choo Choo, knock it off. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) And this is when Utna invites them to come along to the play with her. Um, there is one part here, well, two things really that I want to mention or point out. So, Anthe doesn't have a problem with the picture at first. Um, shenanigans only start happening when Utna invites Akio to be in the picture with them, and 
Choo Choo gets in front of the camera when Akio is about to put his hand on Utena's shoulder, like Utena's in the middle of both of them. And Anthony goes, oh, Choo Choo, get out the way. And then goes and gets him, comes back and gets in the middle of them instead. <laughs> yeah. Repositions herself. At first, I thought it was, oh, I don't want Utena standing next to Akio. Like kind of a jealousy thing about Akio. But after thinking about it, I think it was a jealousy thing with Utena. Like, she wanted to be next to her. Like, she didn't want Akio being there in the first place. I don't Oh, yeah. Think. Yeah. I love that you can read that moment both ways. Yeah. Because it speaks to the ambiguity of this relationship. Like, we as an audience know. Mm-hmm. We are picking up on what, what the animators are putting down. These two are falling rapidly in love with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, like, later on in the, the episode, we have a moment where Utena can't fully explain what makes her relationship with Anthe different and more than a friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, like, the ambiguity of this moment of, like, which side of this is she jealous of? And I don't think the answer is either one specifically. I think it's both. I agree. I think it's both because the relationships are so complicated. Because like, if you're not ready to leave an abusive relationship, you'll still fight to maintain it the way anyone else would. Right. Right. Like, if Anthony's not ready to leave this, as toxic as it is, as harmful as it is, she still won't let Utena get in the way of it. But also, she knows that she doesn't want Akio's hands all over Utena either. Mm-hmm. For Utena's sake, not just her jealousy or whatever. Like, I think this also comes into play with like the roses from last episode of like her guilty conscience of having served up Utena on a platter to Akio. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that like so far, the narrative doesn't give us a clear answer of like which side the narrative is on in this mm-hmm. in this situation. Like this episode is yes, clearly setting up the idea that Anthe is the villain here, not Akio. But we have seen too much to think that Akio is anything but a villain. Right. The show has done a lot to set up this fairy tale romance between Akio and Utena. But all it takes is like one moment of, wait, hold on. In order to realize that like, that's rape. <laughs> yeah. And you know, like he's cheating on Kanae. He basically has no limits and no scruples. Um, it is heavily implied that like, he has a thing going with Toga also. Um, whether or not like all the duelists end up getting frisky is, I think, open to the interpretation of the viewer. But the Toga one specifically, there's no ambiguity there. Yeah, that you shit know, is like- definitely happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so for him, there's no limits. There's no rules. He lives entirely for his own pleasure. And we have a word for that. That's villain. Like, (laughs) (laughs) 
Like you don't get to be a good person when your desires always take priority over the well-being of others. Yeah, and when they hurt other people almost all of the time. So I keep thinking about how the whole duelist thing is set up so that people fight to become Anthe's prince and save her from the situation that she's in. Well, that's the that's the frame that we get in this episode suddenly. Like that's the reveal. But yeah. remember, like up until this point, everyone is fighting for their own selfish desire. They're fighting for the power to dominate her, to force her to give them what they want. Right. And hasn't that been informed by the end of the world character, which is Akio? Absolutely. So I feel like if Akio really wanted this whole thing to end, if he wasn't the villain (laughs) and (laughs) wanted his sister to stop suffering and wanted his princely side to be released, uh, he would simply let that shit happen. And he doesn't. He keeps interfering to play this game to whatever advantage that he wants. I mean, like you said earlier, to whatever power, pleasure, desire, gain that he wants. So in my mind, he is absolutely the villain. Is <laughs> Anthe, <laughs> is Anthe, you know, relieved of all uh, guilt, responsibility, etc. in this? I mean, no. She's also done some shit too. But yeah, Akio is still the, the villain here. <laughs> so I, I think that it's important to note that he can't reclaim his princeliness because of his perspective on how this all works. Like, it's not simply that he could choose to do differently and choose to become a prince again. Like, He thinks this is how it works. He thinks that male power comes from dominating women. Yeah. And therefore, that power is completely inaccessible to him. It's like the the things that you don't know that you don't know. It's ignorance in a way that actually restrains him. Yeah. He's like, ugh, I've been dominating women for hundreds of years. Why can't I still not get this power? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just a f- and yet, he's just an actual fucking idiot <laughs> and so this whole time he has been grooming these kids to behave like he does and wondering why it never works why none of them are able to release her either yeah never quite gets to the maybe i should try something else point right and then utana now shows up doing something different not playing the game according to his rules. I mean, she does. She does duel within the bounds of the dueling game. So there is that. Like, I want to rephrase what I said a little bit. Like, she does, even though she doesn't get the letters and the instructions and isn't um, doing it, like, in the way that he has prescribed, she is still playing the game according to the rules of the game. And so while she disavows the whole Rose Bride thing, she doesn't leave the school. Right. You know, like she doesn't 
she doesn't like we, we see this in like the second episode. She doesn't abandon the dueling game just because she doesn't think that it's right. You know, like in the end, she makes the sacrifice of saying, I will continue to fight in these duels because I believe that I can be uh, more kind to Anthe than the others. But in so doing, just because I don't whip her, I still hold her leash. And that is still playing the game according to its own rules. These are rules that Akio himself set up and that he cannot fathom why it is that by these rules, he can't get his power back either. Yeah. And that's on some level, Dios coming down and helping Utena, whether you believe that that is Akio himself putting his finger on the scale or whether you believe that that is some genuine noble part of Utena inspiring this from that power that is separated from Akio, I don't think is clear. I don't think we have a clear answer to which one of those two things it is. No. You know, it, it could still be like, Actually, it's all a shell game, and Akio's always had his power. And, you <laughs> right. know, like, because, like, that would be completely in character with Akio to bullshit everyone that way. <laughs> yeah. No, nevertheless, like, he can't be a prince again because his worldview has shifted to a degree where that side of him is inaccessible to him. Yeah. Contrary. I'm pretty sure Anthe still remembers things not being the way they are now. Oh, a hundred percent. She gives the thousand yard stare like so many times. She <laughs> did it in this episode at least twice. And speaking of Anthe and her gaze at the end of this scene, <laughs> which we have gone very far afield from at the end of this scene, um, uh, the final picture is taken and Anthe apologizes for closing her eyes. She does this right after Utena invites them to the play. Mm -hmm. And so this is our first foreshadowing of maybe this is something that they don't want to see. We, the next scene is the play. They are the only ones there. And this is in every possible way a reference to Hamlet. This is the play within a play in Hamlet. Anthe and Akio are being confronted by their own history as told by the Shadow Girls, which is on some level an omniscient chorus and on others, like it's the perspective of their story as it exists in the minds of the students today. Like this is the <laughs> legend that has been passed down. And like any game of telephone, the story now goes that back in the day, there were uh, in the days when like princess or girls were princesses and there was this prince, uh, there was the Rose Prince who uh, saved them all from various monsters. And every time he goes for a kiss, he's denied, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. She puts it off every time. <laughs> Further gay foreshadowing. Yeah. There was this idea that the world was going to fall without him. It was going to fall into darkness if he wasn't there to prevent it. 
which you can extend this metaphor to the school as well of this idea of falling to darkness just meaning growing up. Mm. Um, like this whole idea of either you become a princess or a witch is kind of like you either exist in this state of perpetual girlhood or you become an adult. Um, the In the play itself, a, a witch, like hunched over old woman with like this giant crooked nose and very specifically Anthe's glasses <laughs> uh, warns the prince that the witch's castle is the castle in the sky and he needs to stop her to prevent her from stealing the light of the world. So he rides up there in order to do battle with her. And then, but when he gets up there, uh, he recognizes the old woman is the witch. <laughs> it was a trap. Cue <laughs> Admiral Akbar. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, you were the light. And so she traps him, reveals that she's his little sister. And then we get this moment where the house lights, like there's like a, a spotlight from above that comes down on Akio talking about the prince and then mm -hmm. on Anthe talking about the prince's little sister. And this is where we get that line that uh, she's the one person that he can't make into a princess mm -hmm. because they're uh, siblings. So that means through no fault of her own, according to this worldview, she's doomed to become a witch. She was always doomed to become a witch because she's the one person who can't be a princess in his, uh, in his sphere, in his like um, way of making girls into princesses. And so then uh, the shadow girls say that the world fell into darkness and we cut to Akio who is giving the most unimpressed look. <laughs> <laughs> Like, nah, that, that's not quite how it happened, but this is hitting too close to home and I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> the shadow play is too sad. Alexa, play Despacito. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and then the, the play closes with the shadow girls saying that um, the witch is still searching for noble souls to sacrifice anew. And to she does this in order to keep them from uh bringing light back to the world this is them very clearly laying all of the blame for this situation at anthe's feet yeah i mean this is the way that i view it is that this is the story that was told by the people with the pitchforks right yeah not the people who it actually affected well the two parties <laughs> that were speared in some way by this <laughs> You could also think of this as it being Akio's view of what has happened. Yeah, that's true. Because we know from like the past couple episodes that the distance between him and the Shadow Girls isn't as great as it is perhaps between him and the rest of the students. Mm -hmm. Like whether they're under his control or whether they comment on uh, his doings without his consent, but with a little too much knowledge. 
I think it's ambiguous. Well, I kind of feel like the Shadow Girls were Anthe's creation. Okay. Or, you know, maybe they're aliens that were attracted by Anthe's magic. But um, I kind of feel like they're Anthe's creation. Because when Utena mentions that she's taking them to a play, Anthe reacts like she knows what's going to happen. Oh, I blinked. Like, I blinked out of surprise or shock or what have you. Uh, It makes sense in my head, but I'm not explaining it right. Kind of like a, oh shit, we're going to meet them kind of thing. I don't know if she intentionally or unintentionally created them. It could be a choo-choo blend of the two. (laughs) Like, she both intentionally and unintentionally created choo-choo. But yeah, I... I think from the way she reacted when the picture was being taken and the way that she tried to be as like stone faced as possible, like have that mask of her smile on throughout the whole play. I kind of feel like that was her magical realism orchestrating or at work there. Okay. So like it was her having the shadow girls put on the play in order to dig at Akio. Yeah. I mean, even if it was subconscious, like how Choo Choo subconsciously does things like the shadow girls, her subconsciously bringing the shadow girls to life (laughs) (laughs) and bringing them to that moment. Because again, it could be out of guilt or reactionary from the last episode where she is maybe wanting to explain to Utana. And this is the only way that she knows she can without openly showing her hand and also then revealing to Akio because he watches her like a hawk because even Akio's reaction to the play of like, Oh, that was just like students or whatever. Like that's all I, Oh, he says it was what I would expect of students like condescendingly like, Oh, it was, it wasn't that great. I'm an adult and I've seen better things. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm like, yeah, it, it got under your skin, huh? <laughs> I think also, even if it isn't a matter of like one of them orchestrating this to happen versus the other, it may just be that Anthe is more comfortable with the role she's been cast in yeah. than he is with the role that he has been cast in. Yeah. Because like nothing in this play separates Anthe from anything we haven't seen from her already. Like she's always had magical powers. She has always been a little bit cruel, but this is rubbing Akio's face in what he can't have anymore. So I think it just hurts him more. And she just might enjoy the fact that it's hurting him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Whether or not that was like actually her intent or whether it was just like a pleasant side effect of this happening. Um, The fact that Utena wanted to see this play means he can't just leave. (laughs) (laughs) And Anthony's just sitting there like, oh, I'm loving this. (laughs) Yeah. Like I think most of this we've we've talked about already before we even got to this scene about like the witch versus princess thing. 
Um, I don't know <laughs> how much more I have to say about that specific point, like during this episode. Um, I know it definitely comes up again later, <laughs> but just this idea that this dichotomy here between princesses and witches, and I think it's one that can only exist in the minds of young folks. Like, I think once you reach a certain age, even if you aren't particularly up on, like, feminism and uh, social consciousness, just the experience of aging as a woman puts you in positions where life just isn't simple enough to maintain the, the, the princess mindset. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if you don't recognize in others, like... You will see it where women will keep each other down by enforcing gender rules on one another because they are perceiving that inadequacy within themselves and they don't want to be the ones that patriarchy punishes for stepping out of line. So they will preemptively punish other women. As you grow older, generally for women... <laughs> Um, just the the exigencies of life push you into a place where you simply cannot keep maintaining that. It's kind of like a one of those things that people talk about of like, you know, in your 30s, you learn how little like other people were thinking about you in your 20s. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then like in your 40s, you realize like no one gives a shit about anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that attitude that like I, I've been rewatching Star Trek Next Generation and Catherine Pulaski gets done so dirty by that show in like how she's written and how the scenes and the shots approach her and her character where she's just a strong willed older woman, but they end up making that seem uh like especially bad. And I remember fans hated her for a long time. In this rewatch, I'm like, nah, but she was right. Uh, kind of a little bit bigoted towards Data. Uh, there's that. But other than that, like she was just burdened with competence in a place where um, they just didn't make space for that for women to the degree that like you'd expect um this isn't a star trek podcast i have very long rants and rambles about that but i just <laughs> wanted to like compare that because like i think this image of which that they are lifting up here is in a sense just adult women being adults oh yeah oh yeah a hundred percent well and i was just gonna say that it's very much like how when you're young let's say under 25 i would even say under 20 but you think like 25 or oh my god 30 is so old but women especially get this and uh if you're a woman reaching 25 uh leonardo leonardo dicaprio especially gets this um <laughs> If you're under 25, you're a princess. If you're over 25, you're an old hag. And that I kind of feel like 
plays into this. Yeah. With that same, yeah, that same ideology, that same perspective, like black and white, you're either a princess, you're under 25, you're in your youth, you're quote unquote prime, which is bullshit. Um, Or you're an old hag because you're over 25 and nobody gives a shit about you anymore, which is also untrue and bullshit. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, oh my God. I was going to say, is Akio fucking Leonardo DiCaprio? (laughs) He's like, he's he's fucking predatory to like anybody (laughs) under the age of 25. He like grooms high schoolers. The second Anthe turns 25, he finds a new sister. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that's, that's what, what she's she actually never, been yeah. afraid of this whole time. That's why she never ages. <laughs> that's why she had to imprison him and freeze time, so that way she'll never turn twenty-five and get dumped. Exactly. <laughs> I couldn't not make that reference. I'm not sorry. This won't be funny by the time it comes out, but it's funny to me now. <laughs> oh, it'll be funny for the next twenty-four years, at least. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Oh, my God. After the play, we cut to Toga and Sionji practicing. And Toga drops the line that he needs the practice because he's going to be stepping into the dueling arena again. He's got a fight coming up. Mm -hmm. And Sionji gets pissy and is like, why do we keep losing to this stupid girl? At which point Toga says, she's not just any girl. When she was young, Dios showed her something eternal. And that's when Sionji finally connects the dots that Utna is the girl from the cemetery. I could not believe this took him this long. (laughs) I could. It took him 10 years. Well, okay. He didn't know Utena for that long, but it took him a couple months to make that connection. Good Lord. So then we get the shadow play, like the actual shadow girls moment in the show. Uh, not the, the play within a play uh, where we have for once, all three shadow girls together. Eiko yeah. um, and Biko are in the bath and uh, they cheer to one another for putting on their play perfectly. And Seiko shows up doing the go guy, go guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, jumps into the bath and sinks into it wearing uh, an inner tube and a snorkel. <laughs> Aiko and, <laughs> a- a- and Biko are like, she's talented, but she's fucking weird, dude. <laughs> and, uh, and Biko says... Uh, you don't have any friends, do you? To which Seiko, in full childishness, turns on the shower head. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, she definitely doesn't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> to me, this kind of shows like the the whole three's a crowd idea. Mm-hmm. Because we have sort of like a love triangle thing going on between Akio, Anthe, and Utina. Yeah. And as fucked up as the Akio and Anthe thing is, it's only ever awkward when it's the three of them, which on some level kind of makes Utena Seiko in this scenario because 
the other two are the established pair and she's the one jumping in a bath with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and really doing it with like full abandon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but also like that you don't have any friends, do you? Uh, I mean, I know she has Wakaba and she's kind of become friends with the other student council members, but like she is the one who kind of parachutes into the situation and uh, just decides things will be different now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after this, we go back to the planetarium and Akio and Uten are on the couch and Anthe's saying goodnight. And Uten is like, oh, you're going? And she just says nothing and leaves. <laughs> Which, like, okay, girl. Um, but then Utena asks Akio, you know, what did you think of the play? And she was excited uh, to hear his response. And again, like I said earlier, he gives that condescending review of, like, it, it was what I would expect of students, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't get it she's like it's what you would expect of students i think a part of her is like a little hurt and disappointed here but also not really comprehending what what he means which just shows their age difference um and then this bitch says the most audacious (laughs) statement of this entire fucking show so far he just goes oh it must be hard being with anthe It must be tiring to be friends with her for this long. I know all about it. Girl. (laughs) Dude. For real. (laughs) If you, I wrote in my notes in all caps, the audacity of him to say this. If you do not (laughs) go somewhere, I just, I couldn't believe that. She's kept you alive for these hundreds of years. And that's what you have to say. Get out of here. And like, This is the moment where he interrogates her a little bit about why Anthe's important to her. And she can't put it into words. Like, it is clearly more than ordinary friendship. She would not have this problem describing her friendship with Wakaba. No. And this is, like, if you hadn't been, if you somehow missed the subtext up until now, this is the first time Utna has had to put her feelings about Anthe into words, and she can't quite do it. And even blushes at one point. Yeah. Um, Also, I kind of feel like Akio was doing everything to lead up to this moment to try and interrogate her, gain her complete trust as much as he could, to try and interrogate her and figure out how she is so different and why she is succeeding. Like, he absolutely pulled the long con and is even testing her nobility with all the bullshit he's pulling and the rape. Yeah, I mean, you were giving him more credit than I was. I figured that he just wanted sex and this entire conversation, he is indulging her because, like, he feels like he has to get through this. So that they can get to the sex. Oh. Yeah. But nevertheless, the conversation itself turns to um, him pointing out that the ring that she got 
from the prince. Uh, she didn't take it off even that night. <laughs> and it's like, why would she? Like, I think this comes back around to this idea of it being an engagement ring. Mm-hmm. Where Akio's cheating doesn't matter, but Utena's does, even though she's not dating the fucking prince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, like the fairy tale answer to this, the the version of this that is tied to our cis heteropatriarchal norms about sex and virginity and the value of women being diminished every time they have sex with a man. Mm -hmm. All of that is piled onto these few words about her not taking the ring off. Like it's somehow shameful what they did because she has a prince that she's waiting for because you're supposed to save yourself for marriage and she's already committed to this prince. And so, haha, you're cheating. It's like, dude, you're engaged to fucking Kanae. And apparently not everything that goes down with her is consensual either. Right. (laughs) You have zero room to talk about anyone else and what they do with their body willingly. Right. (laughs) And like, um, and I use willingly in big quotes there because of the power dynamic at play here. Um, and like, it gets to her. She she talks about how her prince said to never lose her nobility. And clearly there's a shade of meaning here about maybe she has because of sleeping with Akio. Mm-hmm. And this, again, cuts back to what I was saying last episode about like in her mind this was all consensual and above board because she's not looking at this from a power dynamic point of view. Mm -hmm. Like she doesn't have that perspective to analyze the, the power at play. And so to her, this was all just two consenting people, even though she's underage and that by definition precludes her ability to consent to sex with Akio. Um, And so then he continues to ask her about when she got the ring and she says she can't remember. Mm -hmm. And then the scene cuts to the flashback. Part of this is like, mercifully, we don't see what happens between that conversation and her waking up in bed later. The good news is she wakes up in her own bed, not that like four post canopy bed that Akio gets it on with Toga in. Right. Um, So you can at least like plausibly say like, yeah, no, she just had some tea and went back to bed. (laughs) Yeah. We get the flashback and we see the bit about Sionji and Toga discovering her in the coffin and the lightning flashes. And then After a while, it's just her alone on this bed of roses in the coffin. And Dios comes to her. And here... We see his face. Yeah, we see his face. And we don't see a silhouette of Utena in the coffin. We see her as a child there, confirming that all of this was her and did happen. And Dios looks 
so young and childlike. And they start to have a conversation. Utena asks him what he's doing here. He says nothing. She asks him if he's the angel of death, to which he replies, I do not serve death. Which, like, damn, okay, what a statement. Yeah, he's serving princeliness. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Utena just responds, you're so pretty. (laughs) Uh, Again, just a very childlike conversation. It's really cute. And he doesn't say anything, but he just walks away and she gets up and follows him. And this is where the magical realism really comes into play because all of a sudden they walk to an edge of something. Yeah, like they're walking through a non-space. Yeah. You know, it's dark. It's just gray. They're walking on what looks like stone or concrete and they end up coming to like a cliff edge or like the edge of a wall or something. Yeah. Yeah. And they look up and there's a red carpet leading up to what you could kind of call a rose. It looks a little deformed, um, but it's these splotches of red and there's someone hung in the center of it. You just see a silhouette. And Utena asks, who is that? To which Dios responds, a witch, the Rose Bride. And then says, I envy those that can die. What a statement to make to a small child (laughs) who just saw (laughs) her parents die. (laughs) Yeah. But then he goes on, she cannot die. She simply lives in agony. It is her punishment for taking away the prince from all the girls of this world. And then says they tell the story even now, the tale of the rose. And that's when we get the flashback in the flashback, presumably from Anthe's point of view, where we have that cabin, people swarming around it, this mob of people with pitchforks and swords outside, and all shouting like, we know you're in there, Prince, please, you're the only one that can save my daughter, save my family, blah, blah, blah. He's inside laying on a bed of hay. He's feverish. There's a fax machine in there. Just just to go in. The feed is just printing out. <laughs> the fax machine feels like an element of a haiku where in haiku, like in a, a proper, like traditionally written haiku, it's not just about the syllable count. There's more structure to it. Uh, and there's more to it about like capturing um, a single moment and very importantly in the first verse of a haiku like if you're doing linked verse um, uh, if you're doing renga like linked verse with haiku in the first one in that moment you have to establish the season and so you will use a word or a phrase that clearly signifies what season this moment is taking place in to me the fax machine kind of does that like like it's this it's out of place it's completely out of place and yet it's there to show us that like this is happening among so-called the peasants this is happening among the common people and in this heightened reality of princes and princesses and rose brides and witches and magic and all of that. But 
It is also clearly happening between the dates of 1978 and 1998. Yeah. You know, like, like this didn't happen 500 years ago. This happened like 12 years ago or something, you know, like, yeah, that to me is what the fax machine is. It's the signifier that like the animation shows this as being um, a Disney-fied medieval, but this actually only happened a matter of years ago. These characters aren't eternal. They haven't been here forever. The age difference between um, Dios in the scene with Utna and now reflects the age difference between Utna in that scene and now, and that maybe this happened, like maybe he met Utna days, weeks, months after whatever happened in that cottage. You know, like, that's where my mind goes with this. Well, like, this isn't some, like, eternal narrative. This actually just happened pretty close to in real time. And everything else is kind of crazy. Which does, in fact, conflict with the timeline of the uh, Black Rose saga. Yeah. And you can throw it up either way on this one of we know that the show and the manga were made concurrently. Like there wasn't a manga to base the show on or vice versa. They were being made concurrently. We know that they were kind of making it up as they went along on some of it. They did a marvelous job of paying off a lot of the foreshadowing, but like, I'm not sure that they knew fully where this show was going when they first started it. Yeah, And then the Black Rose saga had to be dropped in irrespective of how it would affect the continuity. And so now we come to this scene where it's like, is the age gap between Dios and Akio the same as between young Utna and current Utna? Is this all actually playing out in real time? And everything else is just like the, the time distortion and dilation of trauma. Yeah. There's my real tinfoil hat for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that also, it explains, but doesn't explain the people outside of the cabin wearing modern clothes. Like, that fits in with the timeline piece of it. But the piece that I'm not reconciling is, why would full-grown adults between 78 and 98 be going to a like pubescent teen middle schooler and asking him for help as a prince. Like what was it that he, why does, why does everyone today think that if they haven't succeeded by age 25, they never will. Bullshit. Well, right. But like (laughs) the, I mean the pressure that we put on young people I see. Has only intensified over the last 30 years. I see. I think I was just stuck on the, who is this 12 to 13 year old boy helping? (laughs) What (laughs) adults is he helping? You know, like, that's where I was stuck. Yeah. But no, that makes sense. But yeah, so in the flashback, Anthe is, just has this, argument with dios about you can't go 
you'll die, you can't fight anymore, and finally she just takes matters into her own hands and goes out and tells everybody, Dios is no longer here, he belongs to me. I've sealed him away where you can never touch him again. And then they all call her a witch and spear her on, I don't even know how many needles and swords. And the agony is crushing. And this, I do feel like, could also be a metaphor for if they were experiencing some kind of abuse at home and he was taking the brunt of it and she tried to protect him and it made her grow up too fast. If that is her tragedy. Kind of like with Toga and uh, Nanami. Yeah. So we're at the stage in the show where we have seen enough episodes that I can't remember if this is something that happened in the 33 episodes we've already seen <laughs> or is one of like the handful of things that still hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but we learned in the last episodes that Toga and Nanami um, were adopted. Mm-hmm. We learn they are, in fact, blood siblings, but they are not blood descendants of the parents who raised them. Mm -hmm. It is heavily implied that part of Toga's backstory involves being exploited for sex as a as a child. I don't know if that's like I genuinely cannot remember right now if that's something that we learned that that was like implied earlier or if this is something that's going to come out next episode and I'm jumping the gun on it. Um, But it is another parallel here between those siblings and these two where like you're saying here, maybe this is a metaphor for him sparing Anthe from some abuse. Yeah. And then Anthe finally trying to help him. And now they have been locked in this like, toxic relationship with one another and that is the relationship that nanami and toga narrowly escape only by virtue of nanami rejecting it it puts that entire couple episodes into an entirely new light when you think of it as either akio or akio and anthe but primarily akio trying to recreate the dynamic that he has with anthe between Toga and Nanami. Mm-hmm. In a sense, like making Toga into another version of himself. Yeah. Which, which we have seen him trying to do this entire time. Ever yeah. since we were introduced to Akio as a character, he has been trying to do that. Before we even knew it was Akio doing it, we knew that the letters and the actually that Toga was getting phone calls in addition to the letters in order to coach him into being just like Akio. Yeah. I I think I'd never seen it before. I'd never seen that side of this before. And so like right now my brain is running at like a thousand miles an hour <laughs> processing all of this because like uh-huh. that feels so accurate. I love that idea. I love that idea that, that scene in the cabin is a metaphor for the abuse within their home. 
I feel like it has to be because it also explains why they both are so reluctant to grow up, why they both don't like adults or adulthood, because it was adults that did that to them. Yeah. It was only adults outside the cabin. Yeah, it was only adults outside the cabin that speared Anthe with needles and swords and that were hounding Akio slash Dios to help them to figure out all their problems. Yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) So then we cut back to outside of the flashback, but still in the other flashback. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it's a flashback within a dream, but we don't know it's a dream yet. Right. Um, So we're back in the dream and uh, Dio says that she sacrificed herself. To save the prince. So Utena jumps the pit. Which I love this for her. Like this idea that. There is this gap here. There is a pit. The The path to. Anthe is broken. Mm-hmm. And. Rather than say oh. There, the path is broken. I can't go there. Utena is just like nah fuck that. I'm going to jump the pit. Immediately. <laughs> like zero <laughs> hesitation. Yeah. Um, she sees a rule, thinks the rule is stupid because it's getting in the way of helping somebody, and she just goes to help. Mm-hmm. But then she realizes she can't help. She doesn't know what to do, so she has to ask the prince do something for her. And the prince says that like the prince she loves is no longer the prince that she knew. Mm-hmm. Now he's the end of the world. So we have now very clearly and directly connected. Like it's been said a number of times, but now it is fully explicit. Akio is the end of the world. And as much as she loves him, he is not the prince anymore. Whatever happened, whatever split these two, they used to be the same person, but they're not anymore. And he can no longer save her. He can no longer be the person to save her. Right. And she sa- he says that he says that she needs a prince that she can believe in. And at this point, uh, Sunlit Garden starts playing. And she stands up and says, I'll become a prince and save her. Uh, he kisses her tears away and, uh, and says, if you never lose your nobility you may be able to save her from her eternal torment, which is different from the line that Utna has remembered in the fairy tale memory this whole time. So he gives her a ring and says, I'm sure you'll forget, but even if you remember, you're a girl. So you'll grow up and become a woman in this case, meaning so you can't be a prince. Right. The gender roles. Yeah, and Utena rejects that. She's like, nah, I'm doing this. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where she wakes up in bed. And interestingly enough, Anthe is already awake and looking at her. Utena says that she was dreaming about something important, but she can't remember what it was anymore. She asks Anthe if she was already awake. And Anthe says, I was just looking at your face. Who are you? And... It is a chilling question because a few moments earlier, we saw Anthe 
uh, you know, crucified by the swords of humanity's hatred, looking down at the young girl Utana, and the two of them seeing each other. And then we cut to you know Utana having woken up and the two of them staring at each other again. And Anthe is starting to put the dots together. At first, I panicked and thought somehow Anthe lost her memory and we were going into <laughs> telenovela t- territory. And I was like, oh, no, no, please, God. We don't have God. left for that. <laughs> <laughs> we do not have enough episodes between here and the end to, to throw in an amnesia plot. <laughs> yeah, I was like, there's no way. There's no way. So what are your predictions for next time? Um, Akio's trying really hard to be her prince. Utena's, I mean. Um, showing up on a white horse to save her just in time from this horseback riding scenario with Toga. Um, but I think it's clicking into place for Utena that it's not him. It's already started. We saw that in the conversation on the couch when she rejects him. For a kiss. Um, And also she's questioning why Toga is taking her horseback riding in the first place. So I think that both Anthe and Utena are starting to put different things together. Utena a little bit slower because she's a little slower (laughs) when it comes to um, picking up on these hints and clues. She's just... (laughs) She's just more direct. It's just her approach. So she thinks everybody's going to be direct anyway. um, But yeah, um, predictions. I feel like the preview gave us so little. The only prediction that I really have is that I feel like Akio is going to lose a little bit of his shine for her. Okay. Um, I don't know what my predictions last time were for this episode, but they were like wildly wrong. <laughs> just so completely wrong when when the shit started happening in this episode i was like oh yeah that shit went way out the window (laughs) so yeah this is we're in new territory now baby like i am out of my depth i don't know where we're going um i would like to predict that the shadow girls may make another in-person appearance next time okay but that's all i got so i mean what we do get at least from the the preview is that Akio tries to upstage Toga on a classically romantic date. Uh-huh. But also Toga is trying to like horn in on the whole Utena and Akio relationship, which gross as it is, is now fairly established. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah. Do you think we're gonna get a duel? No, I think it's going to set up for one. I don't think we're going to get a duel next time. Um, I'm still terrified of Utena dueling. I don't, I think it's, I think she's going to doubt herself and it's going to be bad. The shit's not going to come to her and she's going to lose. Okay. I'm so worried. <laughs> In this episode, I was so scared. <laughs> um, we did get one other thing, which is the title, The Love Which Grew In Winter Time," which is, so sweet um i'm hoping that it refers to um anthe and utina's budding realizations about one another but we'll see (laughs) so we do have a listener mail this week 
Ooh, hell yeah. Uh, this one is from Caroline. Caroline writes, Hi, my name is Caroline. I'm a big fan of the pod, and I recently finished watching the anime. Halfway through the first arc, I knew I needed to go as deep into this masterpiece as humanly possible, and my research brought me to your podcast. Glad to have you. Yeah. I've been binging the pod at work and have so many thoughts, but the reason I wanted to write in is that I first discovered Revolutionary Girl Utena after re-watching the 2002 anime Princess Tutu. I came across this Venn diagram on Tumblr, and it's attached to the email. I'll describe it in a second. And, uh, and decided to give uh, RGU a try. Now, I feel like I have to try review Starlight because the other two are so life-changing. So my question is, have you seen Princess Tutu or review Starlight? Do you have any other must-see recommendations to rebound from, from post-masterpiece slump? How does one recover from Revolutionary Girl Utena? Um, hard answer is you don't. Um, <laughs> the you just force... No, no, no. The answer is you evangelize other people to watch the show with you. And that's exactly. what Autumn has done. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think I covered that in an early episode of the podcast. That like, yes. in order to cope with you know, Utena brain rot. I was like, no, I have to spread this around. <laughs> Other people must suffer with me. <laughs> so the Venn diagram is Princess Tutu, Utena, and Review Starlight. And in the center is Magical Girls, but in like a very specific kind of way. <laughs> Accurate. Um, and then with Princess Tutu and Utena, you have explorations of classic fairy tale tropes. With Utena and Review Starlight, it's duels, women loving women, and abstract symbolism. And then Princess Tutu and Review Starlight is meta narratives about the concept of storytelling. I would argue that also belongs in the center because I think there's some of that going on with Utena as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have, in fact, not seen princess tutu or review starlight yet um, i haven't are, either they are both on my extensive list if i'm not mistaken i think carly who has been on the show has at least seen princess tutu so as far as like recommendations this is always such like a fraught question um i am going to throw out there a few of my top anime choices Gachamon Crowds, I think, while it doesn't, like, approach the level of Utena, I don't think much does. This is lightning in a bottle. Like, this was, everyone who came together to make this show was doing 150% of their talent all at the same time at the peak of their careers, and it just came together in a beautiful way. Um, I like a lot of Ikuhara's recent stuff. But none of it is Utena either. Like, this was the right idea at the right time with the right people to make it in a way that comes along like once in a generation. This is, um, you know, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. It is so far above the other Mad Max movies. It's hard to believe they're in the same franchise or had some of the same people involved. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, like... It, it, this is like um, everything everywhere all at once where the idea underlying it, it, it's allowed the room it needs to breathe to 
be as weird as it needs to be to tell the story exactly the way it is supposed to be told and the way it's intended to be told. Um, so they're not anime, but I would also recommend those two. Um, but Gachamon Crowds is one that I would highly, highly recommend. Uh, the first season is primarily about um, like the creep of technology and the the need to be optimistic about our future. Like it's so easy to be cynical about what technology does to us when there's another side of it too, of like, it can be a tool for connecting people in the best ways. Um, and then season two of that show uh, talks about the need to balance your own, um, your own worldview with that of the, the group that you're within. Um, and like the danger of just going along with the crowd for the sake of um, not causing conflict. Hajime Ichinose is like, I don't want to say like my role model, but just like if I could embody a fraction of her personality, I think I'm doing okay. Like <laughs> she is such a good character. And I don't just mean like quality character. I mean, like she's a good person. <laughs> Like a, to her <laughs> core, she always relentlessly sees the best in people. Um, and that is reflected by those people back to her because she's the one who sees the good within them. Um, let's see another like really, really high quality one that I can recommend. Um, I happen to really love Madoka. I know that that's a really contentious one within like the Utena fandom just because like it's not technically a shoujo anime and you can tell by like just some of the the ways that they do things within the show it's not targeting young girls the same way that like Utena was or that like um the other two you mentioned I think were um but I think it deals a little bit with like the same questions that like this show does like th this episode specifically um, that's why it's on my mind actually is like the whole princess versus witch thing mm -hmm. in that show it's magical girls fighting witches and then it goes way deeper on like what it means to have 14 year olds doing this work and like how cruel that is to like put young girls in the role of superhero um not necessarily in the sense of like it should be boys doing it, but more like it should be adults doing this kind of right. Thing. <laughs> like that's a lot of weight to put on fourteen-year-old shoulders. So I can't personally vouch for it, but Carly, who has been on the show before, recommends uh, Carcaptor Sakura a lot. Uh, I know that's one of her favorites, so um, that might be one to check out. What about you, Chesney? What do you think? Yeah, so it's funny. Um, I actually haven't seen a lot of the Magical Girl anime. Um, I've never seen Madoka, uh, I've, which is a dangerous statement to say around you, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also never seen Cardcaptor Sakura. Um, always meant to, but I've never watched it for whatever reason. Um I haven't seen uh, 
I believe Princess Tutu. Is that it? Yeah, that's one of the ones that uh, Caroline was talking about. Yes. I haven't seen Princess Tutu and I haven't seen this. I'm so sorry. I'm terrible with names. What is the other one? Starlight? What is review, it? Review Starlight. Yes. Review Starlight. I haven't seen either of those. I'd heard of Princess Tutu. I've never heard of uh, Starlight. Um, but it's, I'll have to check it out. Um, as for ones that I recommend. So as soon as this question was posed, <laughs> you cannot see me, but I just like raised my arms in the air in triumph. <laughs> <laughs> because this is my fucking moment to shine and to brag on what I believe to be one of the best manga series of all time. I feel like it is so underappreciated. Um, it's one that I can never shut the fuck up about. Uh, I love it so much. It's Skip Beat. Um, read the manga. Read however far you want to go in the manga. And then go watch the show. Um, the show was made in, I want to say it was 2006 and the audio mixing for it is bad. It's not great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it still captures, uh, one of my favorite characters of all time, uh, Kyoko. It still captures her essence really, really well. Um, the whole premise of the show, um, and the manga is, uh, Kyoko is a girl who devoted her life to her childhood best friend, this boy named Sho. Um, and her life, by her life, I mean the first like 16 years of her life, roughly. Um, she quit middle school, or no, excuse me, she graduated from middle school but didn't go to high school to move to Tokyo with him and support him becoming a, uh, a pop star. And you're probably at this point like, Chesney, what the fuck? This doesn't sound like something you would like. You're correct. <laughs> uh, the twist is that she one day overhears him talking to his manager about how he just brought her there um, to basically be his maid, to cook and clean and provide for him like a mom would. And she flips her shit on him. And that day opens like a Pandora's box of all the resentments and grudges that she held inside of her. And they all manifest as the spiritual energy that can interact with the real world. Um, and from that moment on, she claims that she will never fall in love again because she loved Shotaro show with her whole heart. Okay. And wanted to marry him. And she says she will never love again. She locks her heart away. Um, in that Pandora's box and the grudges just roam free with her. And she vows to get her revenge by becoming an even bigger star in every way than he will ever be. So the uh, manga and story is about her journey into becoming herself. Um, Self-love, the courage to like love again. Um, it is a really beautiful, well-written fucking hilarious story i cannot encourage people enough to go read the manga um again watch the anime if you want 
Um, but this is where I'm going to put in my two cents of I really want to petition to get a reboot of this made just like they did with Fruits Basket because I think it is just <laughs> I'm serious I think it is just as deserving and I've always wanted to get an online movement of this so fucking <laughs> you know tag me on Twitter uh, if you want to get this petition going because I really do I'm so passionate about this fucking <laughs> and story i think it deserves a second chance um in the mainstream other recommendations are mob psycho 100 for funny feel good um good connections deep meaningful moments um type anime shugo tara for magical girl anime that's not really as well known um and then Yu-Gi-Oh is an all-time classic (laughs) (laughs) watch the dub of the of Yu-Gi-Oh. it's worth it every penny so <laughs> this is kind of like the problem with the question of like what is as good as Utena. I think like the hard part about it is Utena is the show that I am such a fan of that I dragged my friend Chesney along on this rewatch in order to make a podcast about because I, I'm that big of a fan of it. Uh, nothing else reaches that level. But I would also, uh, I would also tack on a recommendation for um, Evangelion. Ooh, um, another one I haven't seen yet. It's good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like my Crunchyroll history is, is full of just some wild shit. Ninety eight percent of it is not stuff I would recommend to others. Um. And yet I found like perfectly passable and enjoyable to watch. But like as far as like the the true gems out there. Yeah, I think I'm sticking with the ones that I, I've said so far. <laughs> and we've talked, we mentioned Kill a Kill on this show before. It's good. I am not going to compare it to Utena though. <laughs> like, oh, hell no. But it's good. Like, it's, it's way it's too enjoyable. for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's enjoyable, but it's no Utena. Yeah, like that's a show that you have to understand going in that is it's an exploitation joint. Like that's all there is to it. Yeah. I mean, I will admit I love pretty much everything that Studio Trigger has done just because there is an appeal at least to me to these shows that are just a constant permanent crescendo. And you think that like they can't keep pushing the concept any further, and yet they do. Um, I like I enjoy having my mind blown on that level, but it's not high art <laughs> in the same way no. that Utna is. Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's like seeing how high your amp can go before blowing the speaker. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's what that, that those shows feel like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is not the same thing. So, yeah, those are the ones that uh, we recommend. If you, listening, have further recommendations, you can write in to us at absolutedestinyapodcast at gmail.com. You can also post them to us on Twitter um, at Zetai Unme Pod. I'm also individually on Twitter. I'm at Life in Neon. And I'm at Car Cutie, and I want to get that fucking skip beat petition going so seriously tag me oh we have one late breaking uh recommendation from 
a friend of mine who was texting me while we were recording this. Um, <laughs> Haibane Renme is uh, one that like it has lived forever on my to watch list, but like the content of it is um, a bit heavy. So that's one that uh, has been recommended to me in the past. Um, fair warning, it deals with suicide in like a, a really interesting way, but it's a bit heavy <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> if we don't cut this off, the recommendations will continue to flow in because that's just how anime works. And uh, honestly, Caroline, you should have known better than to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I love talking about this stuff. So thank you for writing in. Um, and if anyone else wants to write in, you have the email. Please send us your recommendations on how you all have coped with uh, coming down from Utana. And we will see you next time. <laughs>